Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. It's been strange being away for so long and I'm very excited to be here as we start the third, admittedly rather shorter season of the Queens of England podcast. Now I've learned over the last two and a bit years doing this show to never make bold predictions about episode length. I've lost count of the number of Queens have required one or even two extra episodes than I'd originally. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary planned as I found more and more that was worth talking about. There's no timetable as such for the rest of the show, but broadly speaking, I reckon we have enough to last us at least a couple of months, and then I'll probably do some final episodes at the end for us all to take stock, taking us to the end of the year. While I was away, my talk on the Tudor Summit went live, and I want to thank all of you who watched and said such nice things. I hope that I've attracted a few new listeners, but mostly I'm happy that I've broken a few tired stereotypes about the six wives. Heather has announced that she'll be releasing these talks periodically on her podcast feed, so if you missed this talk or any of the others, be sure to subscribe to the Renaissance English History Podcast, which you can find in all the places that you find podcasts. I would also like to thank Michelle, who's my newest Patreon supporter. You are awesome. And I am so grateful to you and all my existing patrons. As always, if you'd like to become a patron of the Queens of England podcast, then head over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. 
to all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 57, Anne of Denmark, a storm-tossed lover. Quote, she was not an interesting woman. She had no particular distinction of mind or spirit. She showed occasional neurotic tendencies. She enjoyed intrigue. She was stupid and she bore grudges. Quote, a dumb blonde who had neither the brains nor the education to satisfy the Scottish Solomon. Quote, she confirmed the foolish contempt with which he had regarded women. Alas, the king had married a stupid wife. Anne of Denmark, the first woman to be Queen of Scotland, England and Ireland, is a figure who for decades has been anonymous to those not in the know and maligned by the rest. The quotes that I have just read to you are genuine reviews of her time as Queen from eminent historians from the 1950s right up to the early 80s. This historical tradition goes back really to the anti-Jacobean propagandists of the 16th and 17th centuries, who sought to tar the whole Stuart dynasty with a brush of triviality papism and self-indulgence. While her husband James often gets off scot-free, pun intended, Anne is seen as a millstone that dragged him down. A useless, unintelligent and spendthrift waste of space. But, as with so many of the other queens that we've come across, there is so much more to her than that. Much has escaped the eye. To historians of the last few decades, Anne of Denmark is a woman of passion and learning, one unafraid to challenge the men around her when no rights were threatened, a protective mother and a patron of art and culture, not to mention an active queen of three kingdoms. So, to begin this first mini-series on the Stuarts, we're going to start by talking about Anne's early life, upbringing, and the court in which she grew up. Then we will talk very briefly about the Kingdom of Scotland, so we can bring it up to speed with us, and talk about its king, James VI, and the negotiations for his marriage to Anne. And we'll end it with the nuptials themselves and her reign as Queen of Scots. None of this episode will be taking place in England, I'm afraid, so I guess this is the first and only episode of the Queens of Scots podcast. Alright, I think that's enough build-up. Let's get going. Anne of Denmark was born in December 1574 at Skanderborg Castle in Jutland. She was the second daughter of Frederick II, King of Denmark and Norway, and his wife Sophia of Mecklenburg-Gostow. She was their second child and daughter, and there is a story that says that when Frederick heard that his wife had not provided him with his much-desired son, he angrily stormed into his wife's chamber and publicly upbraided her. Luckily for everyone, there were sons to come, and Anne would later become one of eight, and grew up largely with her elder sister Elizabeth and younger brother Christian, who would later succeed their father as Christian IV. Denmark at the time was a wealthy kingdom, as it controlled the Orisund, the channel that connects the Baltic to the North Sea, and so she was brought up in an opulent palace built in the Renaissance style. This gave her a passion for architecture and culture, which she would bring with her to Britain. Her childhood was full of music and dancing, and was by all accounts a very happy one. She was an attractive young woman, and suitors were never too far away once she came of age, though we are told that her sister Elizabeth was the true beauty of the family, and was one of the most sought-after brides in Europe. Indeed, when King James VI of Scots came a-knocking, it was initially Elizabeth that he was after, and not Anne. 
Okay, so let's hop across the North Sea and get us up to speed over there. Now, this is the Queens of England podcast, not the history of Scotland, but in order to make this episode make any kind of sense, we do need a quick bit of background. Scotland in the mid to late 16th century was, in short, a complete mess. In the supplementals on Elizabeth's suitors, I alluded to the chaos north of the border, but I think it's worth explaining in about, say, a hundred words, what was going on in Scotland in this period. Mary I, James's mother, who history insists on calling Mary Queen of Scots, but I choose not to because I think it's a dumb name, was a fairly disastrous monarch. For starters, she was a Catholic in an overwhelmingly Protestant kingdom. Her first marriage to Lord Darnley, against the wishes of Queen Elizabeth I, who wanted her to marry her favourite Robert Dudley, if you recall, had gone very wrong, and had ended up with him dying in very fishy circumstances. She then married his suspected murderer, Lord Bothwell, possibly by force, and was overthrown in 1567. She went through then a cycle of imprisonment, escape, re-imprisonment, plotting, and so on, until she ended up being executed by her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, in 1587. Meanwhile, her young son James had inherited the crown of Scotland at the age of one, after his mother's overthrow, and grew up in pretty much the most fractious anarchic court that one could imagine, with nobles fighting and dying for control of his royal person. Most importantly, though, he was brought up to be a committed Protestant, unlike his mother. He eventually took control of the kingdom in around 1583, when around the age of 1617, and set about cementing his rule with another round of repression. Once that was finally achieved, he could begin trying to rule like a normal ruler, and a key part of that was finding himself a wife. Something that was particularly important as, since he had no siblings, the succession would be a very dicey affair without an heir. What he needed in a bride was, first, someone of royal blood, as decades of instability had left the crown's reputation in tatters, a wife of royal stock from a good family was vital. Second, she needed to be a Protestant. This was important not just for domestic stability, but also for his hopes of succeeding to the English crown. He was the obvious candidate to succeed Queen Elizabeth I once she died, but a Catholic wife would likely ruin his chances. This didn't exactly leave an enormous pool of potential spouses, meaning that attention was focused on the Danish royal house from the get-go. While they were the wrong kind of Protestant, Lutheran rather than Calvinist, that wasn't a deal-breaker, and there was precedent before, as James III had married Margaret, a Danish princess. There were also strong trading links, and a Danish marriage would be very advantageous to Scottish merchants, who may gain privileged access to the Orisund. For the Danes, this was all about three things. The first two were Orkney and Shetland, the two archipelagos to the north that had been conquered by the Vikings and then handed to Scotland as part of the dowry of Margaret when she married James III. The Danes now wanted them back. Now, these negotiations had been going on for quite some time, from James' minority, but had been humstrung by chronic and violent instability back in Scotland. Danish embassies had often returned back to their homeland, dissatisfied with how they had been treated and the state of the once-proud Kingdom of Scotland. And yet, they persevered, because of the third thing, and that was England. Scotland was a fairly minor kingdom, but England was a big prize, and marrying the consensus heir to the English crown would be a big boon for Denmark. However, the Scots had another option in Catherine of Navarre, the sister of the Protestant Huguenot leader and future French king, Henry IV. She was the preferred candidate of Elizabeth I, and so there followed a frustrating bout of indecision. It was not helped by the fact that James, who, as we shall see, had very little time for women in his life, and far preferred the company of men, 
if you'll catch my drift, was not all that interested in marriage, and was only doing so out of duty and the need for an heir. Like I said, the Scots' first preference had been Princess Elizabeth, but she had been instead married to the Duke of Brunswick during all of this Scottish dithering, leaving her sister Anne as the obvious Danish candidate. It is said that James took portraits of both prospective brides to his room to pray and ruminate on whom to choose. In the end, though, the choice was pretty clear. Marriage to Catherine of Navarre, while it would make England happy, was not a great option, as she was A, eight years older, B, apparently far less beautiful than Anne, and C, might lead to Scotland being dragged into the Anglo-French wars against Spain. Therefore, in 1589, a new Scottish team of negotiators was dispatched to Denmark to negotiate the marriage. The Scots demanded an enormous dowry of one million Scottish pounds, while the Danes still pressed the return of Orkney and Shetland. Eventually, after a lot of wrangling, both sides were forced to severely lower their expectations, with the Danes accepting that they were not going to recover those islands, and the dowry being reduced down significantly to just 150,000 Scottish pounds. With an agreement reached, a proxy marriage was carried out at the Great Hall at Cromborg, which you Shakespeare fans will know as Elsinore in Hamlet. By all accounts, Anne was giddy with excitement. She had spent the last few years dreaming of this king from an exciting foreign land, who would whisk her away and make her his queen. According to one source at the Danish court, quote, The young lady is so far in love with the king's majesty as it were death to her to have it broken off. The ceremony was carried out using Lutheran rite and was suitably lavish for such an important royal wedding, even though it was only a proxy. Indeed, rather curiously, Danish custom required Earl Marischal, the man standing in for James, to sit next to Princess Anne on the marriage bed to symbolise the consummation of the union between her and the King of Scots. The next job was to bring Anne over to her new kingdom to meet her new husband. But you didn't think that would be that easy, right? Anyone who studied any Scottish medieval history knows that it was famously difficult to bring royal brides into Scotland. Some of them didn't even make it there, and others died soon after arriving. Anne's only experience wasn't so fatal, but it was hardly plain sailing. Anne set sail aboard the Gideon, the Scottish flagship, and was accompanied by 13 warships. It was suitably grand, but the North Sea cares not for such things. It all got off to a terrible start, when one of the cannons saluting Anne exploded as she left Copenhagen, killing two gunners, and then one aboard the Gideon also exploded, killing its gunner. They were then battered with storms, the ship flooded with water, and the flotilla scattered. Anne, who had never spent long at sea before, and without the company of any friends or family, must have been terrified. Unable to make progress west, the Gideon hugged the Norwegian fjords and sought shelter there. They couldn't reach Scotland, but the Danish admiral refused to accept the ignominy of failure and returned to Copenhagen. Anne was in limbo. Back in Scotland, James was getting ever more worried and impatient, especially once the Scottish ship that had left with the Gideon returned to Edinburgh. He dispatched a ship to go look for them, eventually finding the Danes on the southern tip of Norway. It was decided that Anne would go to Oslo, where she could recuperate. Humiliated, the Danes immediately set about preparing a second voyage so that they could deliver their bride to the impatient and unimpressed Scots. James, who has a reputation for not being especially keen on either his wife or women in general, seems to have been genuinely affected by this and penned two sonnets, one of which has the pithy title, A Complaint Against the Contrary Winds That Had Hindered the Queen to Come to Scotland from Denmark. 
and I'll read it now for you. From sacred throne in heaven, empiric he, a breath doing the poet's breast does blow, where though all things inferior in degree, as vassals unto them do homage show. Their songs enchant Apollo's self ye know, and chaste Diana's coach can haste or stay, can change the course of planets high or low, and make the earth obey them every way. Make rocks to dance, hug hills to skip and play, beasts, fowls, and fish to follow them all where, though thus the heaven, the sea, and earth obey, yet mutants the mid-region of the air, what hateful Juno, airless and tytheth, whereby contrarious Zephyr thus ariseth. Possibly spurred on by his own sappy pretentious poetry, James decided that the mountain ought to come to Muhammad, and so resolved to do what the Danes could not do, sail across the North Sea and marry his bride. He did so in secret, and there was genuine fear for his life, as it was now October, and that stretch of water only gets more stormy as the year progresses. His trip, though, was mostly best with decent weather, though he would later write in a poem written for Anne, quote, As on the wings of your enchanting fame I was transported over the storming seas. Now, we all remember the disastrous first meeting of Henry VIII and Anne of Cleves, with the fake greeting and all that. Well, clearly that lesson had not been learned north of the border, because James had not done his homework on Danish protocol. According to a source, immediately upon arriving, James, quote, passed quickly with boots and all to Her Highness. The rest of his company went to his own lodgings, taken against his coming. His Majesty minded to give the Queen a kiss after the Scottish fashion at meeting, which she refused as not being the form of her country. Not a good start. Storming in with all your travelling clothes on and then throwing yourself on your unsuspecting bribe with whom you have never met? It was a serious misstep. However, Anne was a pro and had been brought up to be a Queen and thus was prepared for issues like this. According to the same account, quote, after a few words privately spoken between his majesty and her, their past familiarity and kisses. These words, by the way, were spoken in French, as James spoke no Danish, and French was widely understood in the Danish court. Despite his initial faux pas, it appears that they hit it off, and everyone was eagerly anticipating their church wedding, which took place two days later. The ceremony and the feast afterwards were not held in as much splendour as everyone would have liked, as it was taking place in the then rather backwater city of Oslo, and in winter at that. It was also done on the cheap, as a form of petty passive aggression, as the wedding was supposed to happen in Edinburgh on the Scottish dime, while the civil ceremony was a Danish responsibility. The Danes didn't like footing both bills, though of course it was their failure to deliver the bride that was the cause of all this trouble. Following the ceremony and all the celebrations, everyone moved on to Copenhagen, where James met his new mother-in-law, Queen Sophia, who was acting as regent for Anne's brother, Christian IV. What followed can only really be described as a honeymoon, as the couple were able to enjoy each other's company and sample the delights of Danish hospitality at the magnificent court of Elsinore. The wealth of the Danes far outstripped that of Scotland, and all of those trappings were on display. After spending the winter there, the couple then went on a sort of Danish grand tour, where they saw all the sights and conversed with all the notable Danes of the time. This trip isn't tremendously relevant to our story, so I won't go into it further, but it really sounds like a tremendous sort of hipster pretentious jolly mixed with a gap year, as you would go off and chat with the theologians and intellectuals, and they wanted to get 
Blind Drunk and Party All Night. Sounds like great fun. Finally, by April, after staying to see Anne's elder sister Elizabeth marry the Duke of Brunswick, James and his new queen set sail for Scotland, arriving at Edinburgh's port of Leith on May Day. Anne was greeted with all the fanfare that one would expect. Edinburgh had had a lot of time to prepare for her arrival and nothing had been left to chance. Beggars were cleared from the street. Everything was swept and cleaned. When the ship arrived, bonfires were lit and cannons fired in salute. Thankfully this time, none of them blew up. Well, I say nothing had been left to chance, but actually that is a lie, because the royal residence at Holyrood House had not quite finished being renovated, and so everyone had to wait at least for a week, which isn't exactly the most comfortable place for a queen to have to sojourn. It was apparently worth the wait, though, as when they arrived, Holyrood House was beautifully decked out in gold and silver cloth. James reminds me of Henry VII, in a way, in that he has a well-earned reputation for being pretty tight, but was willing to be lavish when the situation demanded it, and Anne's coronation was one of those times. It took place at Holyrood Abbey, which is attached to the palace. The description of the ceremony in the sources describes a huge congregation of people, all dressed the nines. Annoyingly, though we know a little bit about what James is wearing, I can't find anything describing what Anne wore. Now, we haven't had a coronation in a while, and certainly not a Scottish one, so I'll go through it. First, she was anointed with holy oil on her arm and shoulder. Then she went off to get changed into what are described as, quote, queenly clothes and royal robes. Why she wasn't wearing those already is anyone's guess. Then the crown was placed upon her head and a scepter placed in her hand. All the while, the minister was conducting the ceremony in Scots, while another translated it into French for Anne. Now... There's actually an interesting little bit of sectarianism that went on during this ceremony. Throughout this episode, I've been largely working from two sets of accounts, Scottish ones and Danish ones. In the Danish one, it relates that as the scepter was placed into her hand, the minister said, By royal might and power, and behalf of all the estates, we place this crown on your royal majesty's head and give into your majesty's hands this scepter, whereby we acknowledge your majesty as our most gracious lady and queen of Scotland. We also pledge our most humble and dutiful obedience in all that concerns the honour of God, the comfort of his church, and the welfare of your majesty. That all sounds pretty good, right? Well, this is where the Danish account stops, but the Scottish ones reports one final sentence, which says, And we crave from your majesty the confession of faith and religion which we profess. Now, this is very interesting. Remember that while Scotland and Denmark were Protestant, they followed very different strands. The Scots were Calvinists, a more austere and radical form than the Lutheran Danes, and so this either was added by the Scots to make Anne sound if she had converted, or omitted by the Danes so as to not ruffle feathers back home. The former seems more likely to me, as Scottish ministers were already unhappy at having to anoint Anne with oil, Perhaps this was a bit of a bone to throw for them. After this, Anne gave the Queen's oath. Please note the constant Catholic bashing contained within. Quote, We, Anne, by the grace of God, Queen of Scotland, acknowledge and witness before God and his holy angels that we, as long as we live and as far as is possible, will love, honour this same eternal God according to the manifestation of his will as revealed in Holy Scripture that we will advance and support religion with true and reliable ceremonies, will repudiate and work against all popish superstition and false teaching, 
which is against God's word, whatever name it may be called by, that we will love justice and equity, advance the Christian church in this kingdom, and support peace and tranquility, as truly wish that our Lord Father will be gracious to us in all his mercy. She was then treated to a lavish ceremonial entry into Edinburgh, which she took in from her own silver carriage that she had brought with her over from Denmark. There was pageantry galore, with plays performed, poetry read, and songs sung, and she was ceremonially presented with the keys to the city. And so, finally, she had arrived. Scotland had met the new queen. For all of these celebrations that marked Anne's arrival, it is fair to say that the Scots didn't know a whole lot about Anne. Would she be an active queen, or someone content to live on the outskirts of political life, while those hoping for the latter would be disappointed? This is best summed up by historian David Stevenson in his book Scotland's Last Royal Wedding. Quote, James probably at first thought of his wife as something of a non-entity. He must have been disconcerted, therefore, to find once Anne had gotten settled into Scotland that he had acquired a wife who was strong-willed and fiercely determined to have what she saw as her rights recognised. She had a will of her own and was prepared to fight for her own interests. The evidence of this came about pretty quickly. Fairly soon after taking the throne, she crossed the Fourth River to visit Dunfermline Palace, which, along with its lands, had been included in her dowry, also known as a morrowing gift in this case. The problem is that part of the estate, the Lordship of Musselburgh on the Lothian side of the Firth, was claimed by the Lord Chancellor, John Maitland. Now, Anne and Maitland already weren't fond of each other, because he had been a leading member of the faction that favoured a marriage with Catherine of Navarre. Maitland had been a loyal and competent counsellor for James, but this disagreement with Anne quickly turned into a feud, especially after his wife was overheard slagging her off to her friends while at court. Anne and her advisers took legal action against Maitland to bring Musselburgh into her holdings, but the Chancellor refused to budge. I'm not going to get into the complexities of this case, but it seems to me that Maitland was in the right here, but the Danes insisted that Queen Anne was getting shortchanged, and insisted that this oversight be rectified. For his part, Maitland did not back down, as he was not going to set back and have lands that he saw as rightfully his annexed. This was all part of the periodic factional struggles within the Scottish court, and Anne was supported not only by her Danish entourage, but also Maitland's enemies. Their combined efforts forced Maitland to capitulate. James dismissed him from court, and he was forced to give over the disputed lands to Anne. While he was recalled not long after, Anne had showed him who was boss. Scotland's new queen had just proved that she could play the courtly game as decisively and effectively as anyone. She was going to be no one's pushover. We've spoken a lot about the English court, and occasionally about some of the ones on the continent during the show so far, but nothing truly matches the Scottish court for crazy, and Anne discovered this to her shock quite early on in her reign. Buckland folks, this is a good one. Remember that crappy weather that had blighted her journey over to Scotland? Well, James was a mite obsessed with witchcraft, and a few of his council got it into their heads that witches caused these storms. After a lot of torture of one unfortunate coven, the Earl of Bothwell was implicated. For you Mary I, Queen of Scots fans out there, he was the nephew of her third husband, who probably murdered Lord Darnley. Bothwell was arrested and detained in Edinburgh Castle, but then made an audacious escape, forcing the court to move helter-skelter around Scotland for months in an attempt to avoid the convict, whom James believed had supernatural powers. For her part, Anne rather liked the Maverick Earl, who had always showed her more respect than most other nobles at court. They had shared interests, and his fluency in French meant that she could converse with him more easily than many of the other courtiers who only spoke Scots. 
Indeed, it was this friendship with Bothwell that Maitland's wife had been gossiping about. Bothwell spent a while on the run, but eventually he caught up with them and attacked the court at Holyrood House in December 1591. Along with a bunch of accomplices and armed with axes, they went after the king and Maitland, who they blamed for his arrest, but also attacked Anne's chamber door. The door was being hacked to pieces and cowering in the corner while her household prepared a last-ditch vain attempt at defence, before the alarm was raised in Edinburgh, forcing the intruders to make their escape. Eighteen months later, Bothwell attacked again, this time at Falkland Palace in Fife, and then the following year he made his most dramatic move again at Holyrood. He waited by the kitchen door with one of his friends until an accomplice within the court let him in. They then snuck up to the king's chambers, swords drawn. James, understandably, panicked and ran towards his wife's door. He found the door barred. Whether Anne knew that it was her husband hammering at the door or not is not clear, but if she did know, then she effectively left him out there to die. As it was, Bothwell and his chum threw their swords at the king's feet and begged for forgiveness. It was a lucky escape for everyone, but suspicion did fall upon Anne. The lady that had let the two men in was in her household, and her friendship with Bothwell before all these shenanigans was well known. Her popularity at court was waning, not helped by her continuing feud with the returned Maitland. This did not deter her from getting involved in Scottish and international politics, though, as evidenced by her interceding on behalf of a dame who had been detained by the English on suspicion of piracy, and being a mediator in a blood feud within the Kerr family. Anne seems to have an unfortunate knack for befriending people who ended up being linked with would-be assassins of her husband. It happened with Bothwell, and it occurred again in the Gowrie Conspiracy. In brief, the Earl of Gowrie, William Ruthven, and his brother Alexander, allegedly attempted to kill James. Anne was not only friends with both these men, but also their three sisters, all of whom were members of her household. This did not look good, but luckily for her she was pregnant at the time when all of this happened, which gave her a measure of protection. While she has had her critics, both at the time and now, it is clear that she was a woman who was unafraid to stand up for herself and always tried to defend her husband. According to one courtier, quote, The Queen's Majesty, according to her custom, whenever she understands that His Majesty is given wrong information and is stirred up against any honest servant or subject, she uses great diligence to get sure knowledge of the truth that she may boldly speak in their favour. Anne's interventions were not always appreciated by James, who often saw them as being more of a hindrance than a help, but it does seem clear that he had respect for Anne. He once said to her that, quote, God is my witness, I ever preferred you to my bairns. Speaking of bairns, let's talk about children. She had come to the throne aged 14, which was considered a prime childbearing age at the time, so as the first few years passed and no heirs were produced, there were a few people at court who began to get a little nervous, and rumours started to spread. James's preference for the company of men started to become a topic of great gossip again, and some openly worried that Anne could not conceive a child. What would happen then? Would this sabotage James's hopes of being King of England? Luckily for everyone, in the autumn of 1595, it was announced that Anne was pregnant. There was a great deal of excitement at this news around the kingdom. Stirling Castle was chosen as the site where the child be born. In February, she gave birth to, joy of all joys, a boy, Henry Frederick Stuart, named for his grandfathers on both sides of the family. Cue massive celebrations everywhere. Scotland, and potentially England, had a secure succession. Anne had done her duty. The baptism, which also took place at Stirling, was extremely fancy. 
Queen Elizabeth was asked to be a godmother in a tactical move again to ingratiate the Stuarts with England, and a great number of foreign dignitaries from Anne's family made the trip over, including her brother-in-law, the Duke of Brunswick. But while this was the happiest of times for James and Anne, it also saw their bitterest dispute. Anne, it seems, had a rather modern view of motherhood and wanted to supervise the upbringing of her child, just as it had happened with her mother. James, on the other hand, wanted Henry to be brought up by the Earl of Mar, the custodian of Stirling Castle. It was considered the safest place in Scotland, and was the traditional place for Scottish heirs to be reared. Anne cared naught for such things, and only saw her baby being taken away from her. It didn't help too, but she deeply disliked the Mars, and did not trust that they would raise her son as she would have liked. This led to a quarrel between king and queen that lasted for months and months. Anne even healed her feud with Maitland, who had an equal dislike of the Mars, and together they worked tirelessly to pry Henry from Stirling. For his part, James refused to budge. He trusted the Mars completely, and did not appreciate Anne using their child as a weapon against him. James tried everything to betray Anne, but nothing worked. Her hatred of the Mars meant that she wouldn't go to Stirling to visit Henry. One suspects this wasn't just maternal instinct at play here. Make no mistake, she was playing politics as well. She made many elaborate plans to essentially kidnap her own son, but James got wind of them and practically dragged her to Stirling, kicking and screaming, to show her that Henry was being well cared for. He then wrote to the Earl of Mar a direct order, telling him that, even should he die, he was not to give up Henry until he reached the age of 18, not even if he were directly ordered to by the Queen or Parliament. Anne's distress at all of this has been blamed for her miscarrying a child during all of this, which quickly brought a sense of perspective. Anne stopped actively plotting to recover her son, and James tried to mediate a little between the two factions, but a permanent rift formed between them. This did not, however, prevent them from continuing to churn out children at fairly regular intervals over the next few years, though with great tragedy mixed in. Of ten pregnancies that she had in her life, she had three miscarriages, including the one that I just mentioned. Of the seven live births, four of them died in infancy. So in all, only three made it to adulthood. Henry, who would die aged 18. Elizabeth, whose marriage to the Electra Palatinate created the line that would eventually bring the Georgians to the throne. And Charles, who would eventually succeed James as King of Three Kingdoms. Her lasting influence on Scotland was not just as scandals or children, but also in terms of culture. Anne's court at Dunfermline was a centre of patronage for musicians, actors and poets, and she was well known for her expensive and fashionable clothes. Scotland could not support quite the lifestyle that she truly wanted to lead, and indeed would lead later when she became Queen of England, so we'll talk more about her love of masks and the like in the next episode. But I just wanted to bring it up here, as it was here in Scotland she started to develop the kind of courtly culture that she would bring down south. I've talked already about some of the more risky and controversial actions that she made as Queen of Scots, but I will finish today's episode with the greatest of them all. As I mentioned already in the episode, she was brought up as a Lutheran, a different brand of Protestantism to Calvinist Scotland, and she was allowed to practice that faith while the Queen. She did not attend public services, preferring to worship in private. But a few years into her reign, she began to swing away from Protestant ideas and back to traditional Catholicism. The presence of Catholics at the top of the Scottish society was a constant worry to the leading lights of the Scottish Church, and Anne's drift towards that camp was an open secret. She was criticised for, quote, not repairing to the word and sacraments, 
and that her religious practice needed, quote, to be reformed. David Black, minister of St Andrews, was known to make the following passive-aggressive prayer each week. Quote, Good Lord, we must pray for our Queen for the fashion's sake, but we have no cause, for she will never do us any good. We don't have a smoking gun, a moment where she outed herself as having switched faiths, but it appears to have happened in the mid-1590s. Calvinism, especially the Scottish flavour, which is now called Presbyterianism, was a very stripped-back faith, with absolutely none of the grandeur and colour of Catholicism, and so it's perhaps not surprising that Anne rebelled against it. She was also friends with a number of Catholics at court, prominent amongst them being the Countess of Huntley, Henrietta Stuart, the king's cousin, and it's likely her that introduced her to the old faith. Now, you might expect James to have been outraged at his wife's heresy, and for her to be in some pretty serious trouble, but you'd be wrong. The later Stuarts have a, shall we say, interesting relationship with Catholicism, being Protestants themselves, at least nominally, but many of them swinging towards the old faith. This was nothing like as true with James that it would be for his son and grandchildren, but he was more than usually tolerant of Catholics at court, possibly due to some sympathy for their cause, but more likely because it helped to keep the peace. It was actually useful for him, as it gave him a back channel to the Catholic issues and to the papacy in Rome. Far from warning her off, James was actually pretty content to let Anne carry on as she wished, so long as she kept things relatively discreet. Anne then had quite the time during the first part of her reign as Queen of Scots. She had come to the throne in 1589 as an unknown 14-year-old and made her presence felt for the next 14 years. She did her wifely duty in adding prestige to the dynasty through marriage and by giving her husband the heir and spare that the kingdom needed. But on the 24th of March 1603, everything changed. At her favourite residence of Richmond Palace, Queen Elizabeth I of England and Ireland died at the age of 69. She had ruled England and Ireland for 44 years, but as we know from all of those supplementals that I did, she never married, and so there were no children to inherit the throne. The Tudor dynasty was dead after only three generations. The crown now had to move back up the family tree in order to find an heir. Unsurprisingly, this thought had occurred to Elizabeth's councillors, and her chief minister, Robert Cecil, had chosen his man, James VI of Scots, who was related to Elizabeth through her aunt Margaret, who had married James's great-grandfather, James IV. Almost as soon as Elizabeth had breathed her last, Cecil invited James to come down south and take the crown, a request that James was more than happy to accept. There was remarkably little resistance to it at all. And so, just like that, Anne went from having one crown to having three, from a relatively minor kingdom to being queen of one of the most influential and prestigious kingdoms in Europe. It was time to live the high life. And it is there that I will leave you for this week. Next time we will look at Anne's time as Queen of England and her impact on the kingdom. England had not had a queen consort for 60 years, not since Catherine Parr. They had waited for a long time for this, and Anne was determined not to disappoint. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 